Welcome to Writing the Wrong Way, a podcast for readers who want something strange and exciting and writers who need something new. If you want to support this podcast, please consider buying my new book, The National Gallery. I'm extremely proud of this book because it may be my best book, and it is certainly my most personal and heartfelt book. But just because I say it's heartfelt doesn't mean it isn't full of weirdness, like sonnets about Leatherface from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and elegies for my dead iPhone. Uh, For a limited time, if you buy a copy of the National Gallery directly from me, I will sign it, and I will also send you a signed copy of my previous book, The Politics of Knives, for no additional cost. So you can order the book and get your free book uh, with it at thenationalgallery.ca. That's thenationalgallery.ca. I'm also excited because it is my 10-year anniversary as an author. My first book, Ex Machina, was published in October 2009, and to celebrate, uh, now that it is 2019, as I record this, I've made Ex Machina available as an ebook for the first time. It was never available as an ebook previously, uh, and I'm giving that ebook away for free at jonathanball.com/freebook. So, uh, go to jonathanball.com/freebook, and you can sign up, uh, get. All my ex- exciting news uh, when it's you know exciting and new, uh, and other free resources that I'll just you know send you as I create them, uh, plus a free book. Um, and again, you can go to the nationalgallery.ca uh, if you want to find out more about my new book uh, and get a free uh, book as well when you order that. So three, two free books and a paid book <laughs> available to you. In any case. Um, Let's get into the show. I'm here with Lyndon Radchenka, who is going to talk to us about uh, his comics writing. Uh, and uh, you're also a letterer uh, for comics? I am a letterer, yes. So uh, you've done two books at this point uh, yourself uh, with you know some artists. Mm-hmm. So uh, first, Infinite Universe with uh, Stephen Call. Yes. Uh, and then, uh, most recently, What Will Not Last, an anthology. You call it an anthology of beginnings. Yes. Uh, so you, in this anthology, it has four stories in it. You wrote all the stories. I did. Uh, and then partnered with four different artists, one of whom is Stephen Call, again. Uh, Jim B. Kamichik, uh as well. Uh, Zach Schuster and Christopher Smith. Uh, yes. For that book. And can you talk a little bit about just sort of how you started getting interested in writing for comics. So did you start working as a letterer first? Or did that kind of come later? Or was that very connected? (laughs) No, no. um, We like to joke that I became... I like to joke that I became a letterer because I wanted to save money. But that's the worst. If you talk to a letterer, they're just going to be really insulted when you say that. But uh, what to start kind of right at the beginning, and I'll walk all the way through it, um, was... Uh, I So I have an English degree background. I got my BA from the University of Manitoba. But like most, you know, kids in the 90s, I grew up watching a lot of Batman cartoons on Saturday mornings. So I was always uh, into superhero stuff. Um, I never actually got into comics until probably my late teens, you know, 17, 18, 19 in that range that I started really getting into reading comics outside of the the mainstream stuff. You were like coming to comics. Uh, so what comics got you into comics? <laughs> um, I think the first comic I picked up was Batman number one of the New 52 reboot by Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo. Um, Scott Snyder was still a new comics writer, reasonably new comics writer at the time. He'd done some titles. He'd done uh, a really good arc of Detective Comics. He'd done American Vampire. 
Um, I'm not sure if he'd started Witches with Jock yet, but Greg Capullo is of comes is known from his work on Spawn, and has gone back and done a lot of Spawn work recently. Um, but it was only then that I started kind of collecting comics again and and reading comics. And it was out over the next uh, year, two years that I was reading comics. Um, it was I met Stephen Call when we were bartending at the keg together. Um, he had his fine arts degree and I was working on my English degree. And uh, kind of the funny story of how this started was we traveled to San Diego Comic-Con together um, because we both liked comics and pop culture and everything that San Diego was about. And we kept seeing indie comics on the shelves there and joking that we should, that we should make our own book, which we never, we didn't do when we came back. That was in 2015. Um, obviously, I've known Gre- GMB Kmicha Gregory for a number of years before that, so I got to see kind of what he was doing as he was getting um, getting his career off the ground also and away from his previous career into, into full-time comics. How did um, you know Gregory? So <laughs> Gregory uh, taught at the school that I went to, but he never taught me. Okay. Um, so I knew him you know, tangentially in the area, but he was never a teacher of mine. So, sorry, what year was this that you went to the U of M and got your BA then? So, yeah, I, uh, I started at U of M in 2011 and I graduated the winter, fall semester of 2014. Okay, yeah. So, it took me three and a half years. I went to U of M as well and did a BA and an MA from like 98 to 2005. And then I did my PhD in, in Calgary. Yeah, you were clearly but, there before me. <laughs> yeah, but, but it sounds like we were kind of reading, getting into comics around the same time because I also came relatively late to it. Like, like I, of course, mm. had read some comics growing up, but the yeah. one I remember, the way you remember that yep. uh, particular comic was, um, I remember picking up, I would just go, like, the, I was in a very small town, and yep. after church, like, the deal was, like, if I'd go to church with my mom and yep. cause a hassle, then after church, she would have to buy me a comic. <laughs> and, like, me and my brother, we would go, like, we'd go to, like, the corner store near the church and yep. buy a comic but of course they would just have like random comics because yep. it's just this weird small town yep. and I remember they, so we'd just buy any comic that was there yep. like, just to have a comic yep. and I remember the one that really like got to me was uh, it was Sandman number 8 I believe it was is that the one with death in it? yes, yes. but Sandman's not even in it yep. uh, for the whole comic till like the very I think it's just in the last panel yeah and uh, it's just him slaughtering people in this restaurant in bizarre manners. And it was like the strangest and darkest thing I'd ever seen. Okay. And it was the actual reprint of the Sandman. So it wasn't the original run. Like, yep. again, I was kind of like so late that they were literally like just issue after issue reprinting this comic. Yeah. Um, and I never, they never had any previous Sandman comics. They never had another one. Yeah. And they just for some reason had this one weird issue. And, I'm, and it just like stuck with me as a... Uh, a comic that just showed me the writing possibilities. Mm-hmm. So what was it about that comic in particular t- that kind of stuck with you? Um, I mean, the the easy answer is that I was just a huge Batman fan to start with, but um, the way that I, whatever uh, writing style Scott Snyder used combined with, uh, with Capullo's art just kind of hooked me in, and they what's, what's kind of widely accepted about that, about their run, their, their whole run is reasonably... Um, well received and it got gotten a lot of acclaim but their first arc was very strong especially for a new creative team and they were doing a few different uh, experimental things that weren't usually done in in mainstream comics so that kind of hooked me in and kept me reading more books yeah that was the thing for me with the, that Sandman I'd never seen a comic like that ever yeah. before a sense where like the character is the main character isn't in the comic mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's a weird self-contained issue it was one of the most violent things that I've ever seen yeah. the violence was like 
very creative and yeah. you know fascinating. And then Dave McKean was doing the cover, the reprinting all his yeah. cover, and it was just a beautiful, strange. Uh, just the cover just did not look like a comics yeah. cover. So just all these weird little boxes that started to check for me in terms of just something I'd never seen before. Do you find that in because you've said you've come late to comics too in any of the work of of comics or making comics that you've been doing well I haven't really made any comics well writing in itself or anything that you would consider you know similar to a comics medium or the way that that storytelling is done do you find that you're I'm not going to say chasing after that sort of storytelling, but kind of the feel that that comic gave you when you first came across it. I feel like, it, yeah, like I feel like that was one of, there's like three or four for, really formative yeah. things that maybe aren't my favorite things in the world, but I think like just were the influences. Absolutely. It's like one to me is Moby Dick, the novel Moby Dick. Yep. One is that comic, that particular Sandman issue, yeah. uh, which isn't, I think, one of the more famous Sandman issues mm-hmm. necessarily, but just one that really struck me in a, a certain way. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Satanic Verses by Salman Rushdie is another one like just is, just has this weird architecture yeah. you know and like there's a handful of things like that yeah. yeah that I just for whatever reason there's a, there are formative things in, yeah. in everyone in every creative's journey path well I think like I think the commonality for me and I think probably for a lot of people is like there's certain things that just make you look at the medium a certain way mm-hmm. like you either you notice it for the first time like you start to notice how it's put together yeah or you just notice, um, like, or for whatever reason, it just is, it makes it seem like it's somehow possible for you to do. Yeah. Like that wasn't something that I really got out of that salmon issue, but I remember yeah. watching Clerks by yeah. Kevin Smith. That was like the first time I watched a movie and then I immediately rewound the movie and watched it again. Yeah. <laughs> because I, one hand I enjoyed it, but the other hand, like, I just felt like I could maybe do something like this. Like it's within yeah. the realm of reason that I could create a thing like that. Yeah. Um, I found a same. I had a similar experience. I'm still going to talk about Batman comics. Apparently today is yeah, uh, Batman's great. The the first issue of Tom King's run in Batman. I think I want to say it came out in 2016. Um, but Tom King in the very first issue did something that I wasn't used to in a common. Because at that point I've been reading Batman for years. In a common Batman comic was he made. It was a very emotional. There was a very emotional moment towards the end of the issue that was very something that I wasn't expect that I wouldn't expect from a Batman comic. Kind of a like an internal, um, almost cathartic moment. Sure. Um, that just that was. I remember finished. I finished that issue and I went. This might be the single best issue, like standalone issue that I've read or that I've enjoyed the most. I'm not going to say it's the best issue I've read, but one of the most enjoyable single issues that I've ever read. And that was kind of a, a clicking moment where I thought, you know, I wish or I want to be able to write comics that are going to have this emotional impact to them. It's not all just action and and adrenaline and and big explosive fun, but there also can be an emotional connection to it. So that's where you started to kind of get interested in comics as a writer. So you see you kind of came to lettering through just, mm-hmm. you know, wanting, just you seeing it as connected to the writing. Yeah, yeah. When, uh, when so... To go back to my to my own history lesson, um, I'd gone to school in Calgary, and after my first year, uh, Stephen had approached me about doing a comic together, um, where he would he obviously would do the art and I would do I would do the writing. But because comics, mainstream comics, is such a a team activity, you have your writer and you have your in a in a normal assembly line version, you have your writer, then you have your penciler, then your inker, then your colorist, then your letterer. Uh, then you're obviously your editor, 
Um, then the writer would get the, the letter pages back. They'd get to do kind of a revision pass. The letter would get it again, and then it would get sent off to the printer. Um, and Stephen was obviously going to do the penciling, the inking, the coloring, um, all of the, the artwork of it, and I was going to write it, but uh, I found that after I'd written the script, suddenly none of it was in my hands anymore. Um, you had to hand it off to someone else. And I wanted to play a larger role on the team, as it were. Um, so I decided that I would try and learn lettering. And if you talk to any person on the internet um, that wants to make a comic, they always say to, to hire a letterer, don't skimp on the lettering. And I clearly ignored that advice because I decided to do my own lettering. Um, but it... Uh, I took enough, there's enough material online these days that it feels like you can learn how to do almost anything if you put enough time into it and you, you really put the work in. So I learned how to do some, some basic lettering. I joined a couple of communities on the internet and I got a few gigs doing other people's projects for them and that allowed me to practice and get better. Meanwhile, also doing the lettering for my own book. And I mean, I probably took three or four passes at this book as, I, as my skills would improve. So if you take a look at what the book looked like uh, the first couple pages looked like, um, on my first attempt, it's not good at all. Uh, it's awful. So what did you, you do to like, like go down the rabbit hole of lettering mm -hmm. versus at a certain point just thinking, you know, I'm spending so much time lettering when I could be writing. I enjoyed it. You just, you just I, started to really get into it. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, what the nice thing about lettering, about lettering your own writing is you kind of, you also get the final say on what it's going to look like at the end. So um, a lot of the, the script that I had written, I reworked in the lettering process to fit with the artwork better. And that's a lot harder to do if you're a writer who can't letter and you're having to dictate this to someone else. We kind of skipped a part, but like, what, what um, got you from, you guys are joking about doing a comic to like, let's actually do a comic. Like the, what kind of bridged that gap? There wasn't really a bridge. It was just, we were joking about it one day and then another day, uh, Stephen, I think Stephen decided he wanted to, to pursue comics and pursue art a little more in his life than he was at that time and he asked me if I'd be interested in, in looking at doing a comic with him um, I had the time it was you know summer break in my schedule and then I I came from uh, as I said a creative background so writing was something that I enjoyed doing so I said yeah absolutely let's let's try it so um, we did a lot of question asking to everyone who would give us answers and we just kind of dove in and and did whatever we could along the way. So what did you do to try to teach yourself the writing side of it? Um, so writing, how do I explain this? So the, the first thing you do is you read a lot of comics. Um, but I also come came from uh, a theater minor in my English background. So theater minor, when you're writing scripts, it's a lot of dialogue with stage direction. Um, I didn't find it to be a jarring difference from writing a comic script. Obviously, there's some some template differences in some places. You need a little bit more more definition, but there are books on on writing descriptive panels, and there's um, a great place to start. Is always Understanding Comics by Scott McCloud. Um, but there's enough material out there that you can you can write a script if you if you go looking for the right resources. So I was lucky enough that I came from a background that kind of gave me a sense of how I wanted to write it. Um, a lot of the way that I write scripts now and the same as I always have is I always start with the dialogue and then I fill in the, the story beats and the panel descriptions as I go along. 
that's something Gregory actually wants to advise me to do. Like, like I come from a screenwriting background mm. in a lot of respects, and so I see like some connections between screenwriting and comics. Yeah, though, like you said, there's there are some major differences. Yeah, um, but one thing that that's uh, approach to kind of writing the dialogue first, then filling in the story beats, mm. uh, I found is a useful approach for a couple ways. But one is. Uh, you just don't write a lot of stuff that is unnecessary. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, um, uh, because I find, I found what was happening to me in screenwriting is I would write all this stuff and then I'd be going in my editing process, I'd just be taking things out, taking things out, taking yeah. things out. And so often replacing it with just like a quick line of like an action or a yeah. line of dialogue. And sometimes I would take the dialogue out and just replace it with the, an action. But, yeah. you know, otherwise like, it was just was getting stripped down to like action and dialogue. Yeah. What do they do? Yep. What do you see them do? What do they say? Yep. And uh, with screenwriting, it's very clear about that. But I think like in some ways, comics has a bit of that yep. structuring as well. Well, there's so much that goes on between the writer and the artist, um, especially when it comes to comics, that there's no set amount of how much writing you need to do to make a comic. Um, I know there are writers mm-hmm. that'll give... Uh, extensive, extensive panel descriptions and provide photo references, and but panel and panel breakdowns. And then there are there's the you can totally flip that narrative, and then you have Marvel method where the writer is just giving a couple quick lines, and the artist is taking off with it, and the writer will come and fill it in after. The way that I write um, is I start with my dialogue, and I'll give like you said some quick um, some quick lines for for action, but I'm not going to tell the artist how he should compose his panel. I'm not the one with the art theory background. They're going to be able to make something look better than I'm going to be able to describe it. As long as they're sticking to the um, the emotional beats that we've established and the the same the same uh, sense or the same vibe that uh, that the book is about, I'm not going to complain if they're they decide to position a camera somewhere different than I imagined it in my head. They're probably going to look better than mine is. I find, or uh, I, I remember hearing Gaiman talking about in an interview as well, and he was talking about uh, one of the unique aspects of the comic script mm-hmm. versus, say, a screenplay is the conversational tone that it can often yeah. acquire. And yeah. he, he was saying he he very much apparently writes these scripts like a letter yeah. to the illustrator. You know, after the, at least, and the more so, the more they have like a established working relationship. Yeah. And so, like, that relationship between the writer and the artist, I think, is really important. So, so in terms of, like, you and, and Stephen working together, yeah. now you're not just, like, buddies doing things. Like, now you're working on a project together. Like, yep. how, how did that um, relationship start to develop? And what was, um, what worked and what was, you know, maybe, like, hard at the start of that relationship? Um, at the start, so our working relationship, I like to... Um, he's not here. I'm not going to speak for him. Um, I like to speculate. <laughs> you should. You should speak for. <laughs> yeah, him. yeah. I should just tell him what he actually thinks. Yeah. No, um, I like to think that our working relationship is built on a lot of mutual respect and a lot of mutual trust. So, um, kind of the first rocky bumps that you come across when you're dealing with uh, or when you're working with someone new is how much criticism can you give them um, before the relationship becomes contentious. So I dealt, as I said, when I started lettering, I was dealing with um, writer-artists, pairs that were working on their own indie stuff. And one or the other, on occasion, one or the other would not take feedback from the other one very well. And then it would become kind of this, you know, stony working relationship till they worked their, their stuff out. Um, for Stephen and I, we, I, there, I, there wasn't much tiptoeing at the beginning. We were kind of 
Uh, we would tell each other when something wasn't working. So, I mean, if I gave him a script, he'd tell me if the, the, the character, whatever dialogue I gave a character wasn't working f um, for the conversation that they were having or if it seemed out of character, on more than one occasion, I would give him feedback on artwork that he'd sent me and tell him if something didn't look right or didn't look clear or looked weird or the shadowing was wrong. Um, the kind of stuff, the, the second pair of eyes that you need when you're making a project. Um, that's And that's one of the things that's kind of an advantage over, um, that at least for myself, over my own prose writing is when you're working with comics, you have another person that's kind of on on the project all the time with you that you can bounce things off of. When you're writing on your own, you're just kind of bouncing things off yourself or your editor or your friends. Um, but when you're working with an artist or another creative, they also want this project to be as good as it can be. They're not just going to say something to appease you. They want this to actually be good. So think, they're willing to push back. I think one thing that's kind of important to keep in mind when people are having that, you know, the relationship of giving feedback in comics too, is mm -hmm. to think about like the difference between how long it takes to draw a page versus how long it takes to write a page. Oh, it's incredible. <laughs> because like, you know, it, it is an incredible difference and it's not to denigrate one or the other or say one's easier than the other, but there's just, it's a time difference. Yeah. Like it doesn't take eight hours to, to, to write a write page, three lines of dialogue. No, no, I know um, a lot of work goes into that. Yeah. So like give, there's a difference between like giving feedback on yep. like, this per, this page of art, yeah. you know, and I think you just need to be maybe mindful of absolutely uh, in terms of like how you approach it. Absolutely, and I find that what I've seen just kind of being a fly on the wall, you know, mm -hmm. and seeing like people give feedback to one another mm -hmm. and like you know people taking it one way or the other. Yeah, I find like a lot of times when people when artists take things poorly is just because the writer just doesn't understand what they're doing. I can see that. And yeah. doesn't understand like maybe they have a point, but they don't. Understand, they're not like they're kind of just not thinking of it in terms of like what went into that page yeah. or they just don't understand something the artist does understand. Yeah. Like how much story you can even get in the page. No, it's, uh, or they're just locked into their words for some bizarre reason. That's the other thing is that, uh, and that was another common problem that I, I would witness with writers was they get so married to their script. They don't realize that there's so much like the, okay, to back up, the only audience for your script is your artist. We're in the studio where we always hear these, you know, sirens. So I, you know, I think it's fun. It adds color, like the atmosphere of yeah. you know, just walking around. <clears throat> the only, uh, the only audience that your script has is for your artist. It's the comic that gets the wider audience. Mm -hmm. So the, if you need to tailor your script as the art comes out, because for a, for a stronger impact, you shouldn't get hung up on your words um, just because they seemed perfect in your head when you wrote them out. Um, going back to what you were saying, the art is, takes so much longer than writing uh, than writing a script, and it's easy to it's easy to overlook that. But that's because artists are working all the time on these things. I can I can pump out you know twenty pages in the time it takes of an artist to write one or to to, to write yeah. one page or to do one page of art. Um, well, it's not but, that they are sacrosanct no. either, but it, but it is it is it is a thing to just be mindful of what you're asking for yeah. when you ask for a change, and like maybe you need maybe don't ask for every change. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you no, know? you need to balance or it like, out. Think about like when you're asking for one, like ask for you know if you have ten changes to ask for, mm -hmm. ask for them at one time. Yeah, because they're 
as opposed to like ask for one, get yep. the page back, ask for another. Yeah, like, but I, you know, but but you're, but it just kind of go back to something you said. Yeah. So one thing that it seems that you're you kind of in some ways it seems we're learning writing as a letterer, mm-hmm. kind of observing how these working relationships between these other writers and yep. artists were working. Yep. Um, and just to, to go back, I'm going to answer that, but to, to go back to um, part of this um, disparity in the time into the project was part of what drove me towards being a letterer was, you know, I'd spend, I don't know, I'll say 20 minutes on a page or half hour on a page and Stephen would take eight hours on a page and I would, I would be like, I need to be doing more here if I want to be an equal member of this partnership. Um, so I decided to learn lettering too. And there's, you know, a lot of upfront work in that. And it's still not, it still doesn't compare to the amount of time that goes into making art. But it balanced, it brought the, the balance a little bit closer. Um, it made me feel like I was bringing a little bit more to the team than just a script. So just, you, just some ideas. And you guys pu- ended up, you know, publishing this comic mm-hmm. yourselves. Now, how long did it actually take you to do the comic then from, say, like starting <clears throat> to work on it to having a published book? So I think we, um, we broke the story together in May of 2017 and we published it for June of 2018. But of that, but of that time, I want to say, because, uh, Steven was working full time for most of it and I was in school full time for most of it. Uh, if we compress that into how much time we actually spent working on the book, probably about six months, probably about half that time. But still that's like shockingly fast. Like we were, we were motivated for what most people do. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so what, 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 um, I mean, it's not an unreasonable amount of time, yep. and some people would say it's slow. But like, if but like, if like you're if they, a full time you, artist, this if is you're slow. Full time artist, yeah. But like, if you're not, like, that's a pretty pretty speedy. And, and I'm curious, like, to know, like, what kind of kept you uh, really motivated and working on it? Then, like, because any, any project that lasts any length of time like that, yeah. you just don't have the motivation every day. Um, accountability. Having another person on the team keeps you accountable for your work. You need to get things done so that the next person can do their job. Um, we set uh, a print deadline. Um, we wanted to have our book finished for FanQuest 2018, um, which had a set date. We knew when it was happening. We, needed, we knew that we needed to get books into the printer before a certain date to be able to have the books ready to sell for a certain date. So that kept us moving in that period. I'm, I mean, I, I, Stephen and I joke about this to this day. I was always kind of worried that we weren't going to make the deadline because the math in my head said that we were behind schedule. But uh, Stephen kicked it into overdrive in the last probably two months of the project, and we hit our deadline with, with hours to spare. <laughs> um, just, just hours. hours. <laughs> yeah. yeah, maybe even minutes to spare. Yeah. Um, but we got, I mean, we got there. We sold a lot of books to start because we'd been hyping it for almost a year at that point and it's been it's been great since then and then um when you decide to do this so this is infinite universe we're talking about yeah. uh you know the first book that you and Stephen came out with uh, as rad call comics uh what's the website where that comic and the other stuff you guys have doing so our website is radcall.com that's r-a-d-k-a-u-l.com um, on there is all of our contact information. It has my lettering portfolio. If there's anyone out there who needs some lettering done, you can contact me through there. Um, it has our regular contact info, and it lists where our books can be sold right now. Uh, Infinite Universe is available through Comixology. It's available uh, at Galaxy Comics here in Winnipeg. It's available at uh, Another Dimension Comics in Calgary. 
Uh, all other orders we can ship if you're not from Winnipeg. Uh, shipping is not expensive on these books. They fit in a regular mail letter, letterer. And now I'm getting my letters mixed up. Um, it costs five dollars to ship a book. That's that's the, the bottom line here. It goes into an envelope. Yeah, it goes in. It's small enough to fit into an envelope. Fold. Nope, it's oh. it's good. So we can mail them anywhere, but typically uh, we sell them in shows and in person. Um, we're scheduled to be at Calgary's our next show. Now we're kind of in the downtime for cons, so Calgary's in the spring. Why'd you decide to do a full color graphic novel as your kind of first foray into? As opposed as opposed to what? Well, what a lot of people would do is like a smaller, like single issue, mm-hmm. 28 pages, 38, you know, 32 page comic. Yep. Uh, it's harder to sell. Black and white. It's harder to sell 32 page comic. So if you take a look at this book. Sure. Um, so you thought like the printing costs. How are we going to make our money back? It, it, you, it, even though it's more. Yeah. It'll be better. Yeah. Yeah. So in that sense, um, when we went, when we looked at. Because the idea was always we wanted to make a comic that we could sell. We didn't want it straight. We didn't want to rely on pitching it to a big publisher on a monthly series. We wanted to have a, an enclosed story. We wanted to finish a project. Um, it was always the motto was always no one's going to take us seriously until we finish something. Did you have Gregory's voice in your head saying that? <laughs> so he likes he would probably tell most people make like a three page comic. He would tell you to make a three page comic. But, but yeah. I think but at the same time he's he's always and I and I agree with him, like yeah. talking about you gotta finish something, you yep. gotta do something. Yep. You know, don't just be pitching yourself as a person who could do something. Oh yeah, no, when we when we talk about how we made it how we got to the end of our, our first book, um, dealing with Gregory and Justin probably interwove the whole thing. Um, Gregory was the one who gave me the first handful of books that I needed to read to learn how to make comics. So he's the one that turned me on to Scott McCloud. Um, Justin and Gregory were always available to have time to, to give us some advice. I'm pretty sure Stephen took their first workshop here in the studio where he learned how to make comics too. So there's talk to them both on their podcast, Super Pulp Science. Yes. I'll, I'll link to that uh, in the show notes this yeah. episode. So you know, listen to you two guys talking to them about it. Yeah, yeah. We so their their influence is interwoven throughout the whole thing. Um, but we ended up to to return to the to answer your question. We wanted a complete book so that we could show that we could finish something, and we wanted something we could sell, which mean which meant that it had to be longer than twenty or thirty pages, which is the average price of your floppy. Because um, a, a floppy comic in color is still going to cost you four or five dollars to sell, and what are you going to? You're not going to sell that for ten dollars. It's too small, in my opinion. It's too small. Um, four or five to print, you mean? And then if you were to print it, yeah, four or five dollars to print a full color comic, unless you're printing massive amounts, and we didn't want to print thousands of copies of something. We wanted a couple hundred to see if we could sell it. So we had to kind of meet uh, a sweet spot in terms of length versus cost versus what we could sell it for. And so we ended up with a thirty or a sixty-four page comic. It cost us seven hundred. It's cost us seven dollars to print per uh, an order of seven hundred and fifty, and we sell them for fifteen dollars. So we have to sell. You know, I'm not going to crunch the math Whatever to make our money face. back. Yeah, we've made we've made our money back on the comic, um, but we put all of that money into um, into going to shows, into other costs, into our our convention display. But it ended up being a sweet spot to balance. I think the other thing people sometimes don't think about with doing a project like this, and just like or any project, you know, mm-hmm. just finishing a project is that you can, you know, uh, if you've got a skill like lettering yeah. now, uh, you have you know a, a per, something that's more than a portfolio. Yeah. Uh, but it's also a portfolio piece. Yeah. And shows because uh, one of the things that people are also kind of if somebody's going to say hire you to do lettering. Yeah. Uh, there's sort of a few things they're looking for. One yep. is like, you know, are you affordable? 
you know, are you good? But the other thing is like, can you actually finish something? Because yeah. a lot of people are really good, yeah. but they, they can't finish yeah. for whatever reason. Yeah, and I mean, that, I mean, a portfolio piece is what what will not last was is a large part of. But uh, at this point, you know, I started lettering, let's say a year and a half ago. Was when I learned. Um, if we don't, if we don't count the you know two months, two and a half months that I struggled through Infinite Universe, but actually started getting getting projects. And at this point, I've lettered uh, a couple a couple full length books. Um, a number of short projects, whether that it ranges from you know two pages to twelve pages, um, as well as my own projects. So when I say a couple of books, I'm talking about books that aren't mine. They're someone else's writing and someone else's art, and they've hired me on as as freelance work um, to do the lettering on their books. And now again, Infinite Universe, the book that you and Stephen did yeah. together, is a standalone uh, kind of graphic novel. Uh, and then you followed it up with an anthology. You call it an anthology of beginnings, mm-hmm. but will not last. But it's you know these. It's basically four standalone stories. Mm-hmm. One of which is sort of a coda or epilogue, you know, or set in the world of like infant universe. Yeah. you call it the epilogue. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you've written all these, but have worked with different artists for yeah. each one. Uh, and can you talk a bit more about this particular project and like kind of where you got the idea to do this and yeah, and what it is exactly. Cause it is a bit of an unusual and interesting, um, it's, book. It, it is a weird little book. Um, but it does, it satisfied so many different things that I wanted to accomplish. So, uh, Steven and I had finished infinite universe and then, um, Steven had a number of other life things come up that comics needed to take a bit of a backseat, which is totally fine. Um, I wanted to, to push forward and I had num- I had a number of, um, short things that I had in various stages of production. Uh, the first book or the first short story in what will not last the watcher was a short that I had written for uh, Christopher Smith, who was a classmate of Stevens that Steven put me in touch with. And we were just testing, testing the waters on a small project. Um, the second uh, was hero man, uh, hero man is with Zach Schuster, who funny enough, um, worked at the comic shop that I would frequent when I lived out in Calgary and it was his own artist. And we joked about doing a, a short project together um, so what this book did was first off, it allowed me to publish another book. Um, when Steven decided to take a bat to, to step away from comics for a little while, um, I wanted to put out another book, but, um, comics is expensive if you're a writer and you want to pay an artist to do your work. Um, but I wanted another book and I wanted to have a project that I could get done in a reasonable amount of time. Um, so I decided that I wanted to, um, combine the various short projects that I had into one book and see if I could have them done in time for uh, Calgary Expo 2019. And it served a number of purposes. So as we said, it's uh, it's four different genres with four different kind of storytelling um, tales and, and lettering methods. So I got to flex those muscles a little bit. What was really important, I think, for... Uh, someone who wants to get into comics writing that you don't think about is um, if you're going to work with someone on a long project, you need to know that you can work with them in a conducive way. So having a collection of short comics uh, not only let me get a book done, but it also gave me uh, three artists and Steven that I'd never worked before, worked with before 
and uh, let me find out if I would be able to work on a longer project with them. And what's been great about that is of the three or of the four artists that are in this book, I currently have three books in the works with them, or three more books in the works with, with them. Um, and maybe we can get that fourth one at some point. But uh, there's just so much that this served in, in terms of being a portfolio piece as well as being um, just a way to, to keep making comics, which is its own special kind of scratch that needs to be itched. Yeah, I mean, I like the concept a lot because, of, as I say, to me, it checks a bunch of different boxes. Mm-hmm. So, uh, one, I think it's just interesting the idea of doing an anthology where you have the same writer for every mm-hmm. book or every story, and yet you've got these other artists coming in. Yeah. And the stories are very different from one another. Yeah. You know, like they're, uh, they're basically different genres. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. you've got kind of a science fiction, a horror, a. Uh, I don't know what you might call it, like kind of like a pulp style. We call it a su- like a superhero satire. Yeah, <laughs> and then you've got the first is more of kind of a, f- a fantasy, yep. but it's got some horror aspects to it as well. So, it's, so to me, it's like a, it's, it's an interesting in terms of it, one. It just uh, in terms of it being a portfolio piece, mm-hmm. I mean, it shows the range of styles. Yeah. As a letterer, also you're lettering it in different styles, so showing like the range of your, you know, like lettering abilities. Yep. You've even got a page or two in there where you kind of talk about lettering and your kind of approach to lettering and yep. how you did it. You worked it in this book, um, uh, but then just on a the more artistic or creative side, like it lets you do these different things. And I think one thing that happens a lot uh, to people in an industry like comics is they get typecast very fast. Absolutely. So, you know, you do a science fiction into the universe. Well, you're the guy that does science fiction. And, like, it's easy to um, get stuck in that kind of, those modes. And there's yeah. good reasons to stick yourself in those modes. Yeah, yeah some people um, really love what they're doing. They yeah. love those genres. And, like, it, like if you want to, I was, I, I talk sometimes when I teach screenwriting. Uh, like, one of the things you kind of keep in mind, if you if you were to be an actor, yep. and, like, there's two types of actors, fundamentally, right? There's actors who are typecast yep. in one type of role and there's actors they call character actors who are not mm-hmm. and actors who are typecast make more money and it's a good career move I mean <laughs> I know nothing about film so I'm going to take your word for it you know and, and but you know and so like on, on one hand like being typecast is always talked about as yep. like a negative thing yep. but it really actually is a sensible positive career strategy yep. Yep. but at the same time you know Maybe you don't want to be typecast. Yeah, well, the issue with being... <laughs> and that's valid path, too. And I think it's important, like, if you don't want, like... Yeah. So I think it's very smart, like, as soon as you kind of did a thing, yeah. you do another thing where, you like, you show that you are willing to continue that. Yeah. But also, there's these other things I can do. Yeah, well, I mean... I think it's very clever in that respect, but also just in the creative, like, scratching the itches. Like, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, going back to the idea of being typecast, um, yeah, some people love being... Uh, being typecast, being a solo genre person or like a single sport athlete. Some people just want to write vampire novels. That's right. But some people want to be a multi-sport athlete or they want to do a little bit more of everything. Like, yeah, I love writing science fiction. I also really love writing horror. It's a totally different kind of storytelling in certain aspects. I like being able to flex those creative muscles. So the idea that I got to do a little bit of everything and now these projects are expanding into larger projects is allowing me to do more of everything. Um, this well, you also call it an anthology of beginnings, which I think is, is really smart because they are standalone, contained yep. stories, but you can see how they could function as like the first chapter of yep. something. And uh, one of like our Hero Man chapter story is going to expand into a larger Hero Man story because Zach and I enjoyed making the project so much. It was so much fun to make fun of superhero comics that we decided to that we're in the we're per, we're going to develop a, a larger book 
sometime in the future. Now, just in terms of the kind of back end of how this book yeah. was created. So this this book, though, it, you partnered with a publisher called Mythos and Inc. Yep. As opposed to putting out um, us, you know, kind of rad call comics yeah. or, or not. So you can talk about that, like how, why you did that. And, and I presume like on one level, it's partly because, you know, Stephen wasn't doing the whole book. Uh, but can you talk a bit more about like what kind of led you to Mythos and Inc. and like and how that kind of has been working? Yeah, so Mythos and Inc. is run by um, some members in the Winnipeg community. It's a small press. Uh, members in the Winnipeg community that I've worked with through my involvement in the local con, um, the local convention scene. Um, they were getting involved in their their new small press. And through conversations, I had incli- I had indicated to them that I was working. I was starting work on a small, just a small anthology collection with a number of local artists and Zach in Calgary. So I guess Canadian artists, everyone's a Canadian artist. And uh, if they were interested in learning more about it, I'd love to show them the scripts and the art that I had done. And they, I mean, they said they were, and I expressed to them that each of my artists and I have kind of a very different agreements. Cause obviously when you're doing creative work together, you always want some sort of written agreement or written contract on how rights are going to be split up. I don't own all of these characters. Um, I, I divide them with the artists that are involved. And I needed a, uh, a publisher that would kind of be flexible in how we were going to manage the, the IP rights. So um, thankfully, Mythos and Inc. is great. They're, they're very friendly to, to creators. And they were very open to... They know that I'm involved in conventions. And that's not really what the business model for... For their company is so they our agreement allows me to print books that I can sell in person without having to pay them royalties on it um, as well as any books that they distributed they would give me they would still be giving me a large cut of the royalties which I would then pay to my artists that I owed royalties on um, for those that had agreements for royalties can you talk a bit about like because I know like you're not really an IP law but like yeah. your day job involves you know lawyering there's a lot of stuff involved. Uh, a lot of stuff. And yeah. so, like, I, I think this is a really neglected area when people kind of move into <laughs> doing anything together. Yeah. <laughs> but especially, like, as something, I mean, like comics where, you know, yeah. you're often partnering with people. is like having some sort of agreement. Not that it has to be, like, a complex Yep. Yeah. No, it doesn't have to be but complex. You, you at least need, like, some basic agreement, yeah. right? Like, so that to avoid, like, argumentation later. Yeah. Or even just, you know even if you all get along perfectly, yep. you need to be able to trace when you start selling to somebody else, you need to be able to trace back like who, where this, what's the chain of title. Yep. Well, and that was something I go, we're going to go back to things that uh, Gregory has taught us was um, very early on. He was, he reminded us you should get a contract. We have a contract for everything. Um, I mean, I come from a legal background, so I would have gone to that eventually, but uh, it's called a clear chain of title. And it's in case you do get involved with another with a third party who's interested in acquiring certain rights for your for your product, um, it establishes who owns what and to what degree that they own that. So when you're looking at at rights, you always want to think of what's going to be done. What's going to be done with these characters, not just in the form of this book, but if it were to carry forward. Um, now we're not going to pretend that we're like that our books are going to turn into movies or anything. Maybe they'll turn into movies, but we're not going to assume they're going to turn into movies. But you always want to consider um, when you're coming up with a contract who gets to sell what and how much do you owe the other person do you owe them anything um they have to agree exactly if you want to sell to publisher exactly etc yeah so there's a lot that goes into it um we all i mean i'm of the advice that if you 
know kind of what you want, you should still get it down in writing. Um, consider a lawyer if you can afford a lawyer, but or someone who is familiar with that sort of that sort of field. But uh, it's you're right, and that there's a lot of things that creators don't necessarily protect themselves or think of when they're thinking about intellectual property. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it needs to be complicated. To say, and no. you can't give out legal advice in this podcast. No, but like, nor would but at the same time, like, I, I think there's like things that people don't necessarily think about. Like, anytime I'm, I've got an idea that I really want to pursue. Um, like, I've got this idea uh, for this uh, character that I'm going to do different things with. Mm-hmm. You know, and the character's name is Lee the She Wolf, and it, and I'm like been talking. I've been doing little things and doing scripts and doing um, writing and, and talking to people and mm-hmm. companies about. The, the idea yeah. in various forms. Yeah. One of the first things I did because I I knew it was kind of a fuzzy idea in the sense that I had like um, literary things I wanted to do with it and then yeah. I had you know comics and film sort of ways I wanted to be approaching it and yeah. talking. So one of the first things I did was I just paid Gregory to draw me a picture of Lee the She-Wolf yeah. and I got him to give me an invoice and I paid the invoice. Yeah. And now everything can get traced back yeah. to I got a work for hire yeah. of Lead the she wolf. Yeah. Here's what it looks like. Yeah. Even if it doesn't, so it's part of my pitch yeah. materials. Yeah. But also like establishes that I own this thing. Yeah. Here's a concretized yeah. you know, version of it. Yeah. Because I mean, you, you can't copyright an idea. You can copyright no. a thing that you make, but you can't copyright an idea. Yeah. And if you can, you know, in this case, I I was I was wasn't even I was too busy to even work on it. So I yeah. just paid somebody else to, to draw me a picture. Yeah. Because I paid them, uh, and the contract was you know work I work for hire. Yeah. Work for hire. Well, now like I've weirdly set the IP in my stone, even though I didn't write anything at that yeah. point. Like yeah. I later have since written things, but you know, but now you can trace a chain title back to absolutely that, right absolutely. So uh, yeah, there's um, I was lucky enough that the the publisher that. I was that I approached was very um, malleable in terms of the way that the um, the IP rights were divvied out because they they don't own the rights to my characters they or our characters they own the rights to distribute the book um, and there's a, there's a big difference there like if you're working like DC owns Batman Marvel owns Spider Man um, it doesn't matter what creative you are you can make you can be the best Spider-Man writer in the world but you don't own Spider-Man you can't make money off of Spider-Man all those people are still work for hire mm-hmm. are still work for hire artists that's why Todd McFarlane left Marvel to create Image Comics because he wanted to own his own IPs yeah I mean it, it gets very like weird it's, I think it starts to sound very weird and businessy to people when yep. you're talking about chain of title and legal yep. issues yep. but on a it really comes down to simple, what you own but on a, on a simple level too it just comes down to like if you're going to work with somebody else you just have an agreement like what happens if we start to hate each other yep. <laughs> or we just don't agree like yep. we get along but we don't agree on something yep. who has got the vote yeah if you listen to uh, uh, Super Pulp Science episode 15 uh, that Stephen and I were on we talk we all joke about how uh, your contract is basically your prenup for yeah. when you break up in comics, um, it tells you what's going to happen to the kids. So that's what uh, it's, and it's it's just worthwhile. And to even have. if you still all get along, but somebody bought it from yep. you, uh, it kind of like again, there's like a level of protection in the yeah. sense of in whatever sense. Yeah, it just sets push. out the rules and what you can expect and what's going to happen. Yeah, and, and I think sometimes people, if they actually go through that process, will sometimes find out, like, oh, you know what? We can't work together and still be friends. So yeah. let's just not work together. Yeah, and <laughs> still know? be friends. And, and, like, it'd be better and still be friends. And yeah. like, I think sometimes that people avoid... 
I think sometimes people avoid like hammering out even like the cocktail and napkin version of that agreement because mm-hmm. they think somehow it's too businessy and it'll poison their artistic relationship. And I think yeah. like in so many cases it safeguards their artistic relationship. Yeah. I mean, if you, <laughs> if you can't have a business relationship with someone, maybe you shouldn't be working with them. Like this is just, I understand mm-hmm. that there's a, you know, a vague notion of artistic integrity in the world, but, uh, at some point, if you want to make a living out of it, you have to start treating it as more than just art. You also have to treat yourself like a business. Well, I think even if you don't go, even if you want to like, I think so often these ideas of artistic integrity are actually, um, uh, they're just amateur ideas of non, that are non-artistic yeah. and lack integrity. Yeah. Uh, whereas, you know, like if you've, like what's what I don't see like what has more integrity than we will have an agreement yeah. <laughs> that we both yeah. are the owners of this thing. Yeah. No, I agree. Um, there's, you know, the common joke about romanticizing mm-hmm. cr- the creative process, but at some point you have to be realistic about how the world works. And that sounds so cynical to say as I'm saying it, but there's so much more that goes into it. And if you want to, you know, protect yourself, and you want to be able to keep doing what you love, there are certain considerations you need to think about. Can you talk about the hero, just to kind of dive down yeah. specifically into what will not last. So you've got this hero man yep. uh, idea. Talk a little bit about that specific ish, you know, <laughs> issue and like kind of maybe how, where that idea came from and kind of how it developed a little bit. Yeah, I mean... Maybe just walk through both, all four of those stories a little bit in terms of like oh. their origins for you and how that they developed maybe differently yep. when you started connecting to the artist. Yeah, okay. Well, I mean, I'm going to start at the end and then I'm going to start with um, the infinite universe epilogue when I decided I wanted to do this project I still wanted to work with Steven some more we kind of left infinite universe um, we left the story pretty wide open at the end of it so I wanted a little bit more closure I just asked hey I know you're super busy um, it, would be, it would be great if we could do you know a short chapter at the end that kind of wraps up a couple of our story threads and Steven he still likes comics he still liked comics he still wanted to do comics so he just didn't have all the time so we still decided to do a short, a short chapter of it um, the Watcher, which is the fantasy, the Minotaur fantasy, we'll call it, um, for Chris Chris Smith. Um, Chris, when he because he approached me about working together, he'd sent me his portfolio, and Chris loves 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 drawing monsters. Had he read Infinite in the Universe? Or how did he get to approaching you? So he knew Stephen through school, and he, um, I had met him at FanQuest when we launched Infinite Universe. And uh, he want he approached Stephen about wanting to do um, some comics work too, and asked Stephen if if I'd be interested in working with him. Which yeah, absolutely. If an artist wants to work with you, you always want to work with someone. Um, so I looked at his portfolio, and it was a lot of monster stuff. And it um, looking at his work actually looking at his portfolio inspired the story because um, I wanted to do. Uh, then I wanted to do kind of a monstery tale, but I didn't really know what. And I don't know how I landed on Minotaurs, but I decided I want to do a Minotaur story. Um, but I felt really bad for Chris during most of that project because there's not a lot of big action scenes to it. It's very emotional, story-driven storytelling. And uh, I, that, it kind of ran, that script, I think I wrote in a day. Like it just worked really, it just kind of flowed. Mm-hmm. Again, dialogue first. And uh, I got to be a little bit more creative in in terms of a of a dialogue, emotional driven story. Whereas Infinite Universe was there was some dialogue, but it was a lot of more action, action beat, action beat, action beat, little twist, action beat, action beat type storytelling. Um, Hero Man, uh, I, if you look at the art style, it's fairly um, 
I know that Zach is very um, Mignola style, and both of us, he worked at a comic shop that I would go to all the time, so we both like to talk comics and what was new and popular. And um, there was one day I was just daydreaming. I was at the gym, I think. Most of my story ideas come when I'm at the gym. But uh, I was daydreaming of a story where there was a superhero who um, was being a superhero based on a lie. So the idea of the story is that the whole um, idea that he's a superhero is all to benefit the city and not because there's any real trouble. Like that, that for once, the, the police are very competent. Um, everyone is very normal. And when you just have a superhero who's, you know, super popular and brings in tourism money and all the destruction that he causes allows the city to raise income tax and property tax and all these other more real world things but it really just came down to wanting to make fun of a lot of the tropes in comics um so we often joke that um you know he wouldn't wreck it he wouldn't realize that the the thug that he beat up last week that was sent to jail was then released from jail and why did that happen like or that uh the thugs weren't ever actually they were always coming at him one at a time as opposed to the more practical like swarm in real life that he was able to fend them off one at a time so uh, it just became a fun project of making fun of, of superheroes. And Zach's art style just fit that type of storytelling so well that it seemed like a natural fit that we'd already been talking about doing something together. I didn't. I don't think I even... I'd, Steve, I'd been talking about it with Steven, and I was... We'd talked about working on it too, but it just seemed like such a fit for Zach that I, was, I told Steven, you know, I'm going to see if, if Zach's interested in it first. And, and he was. <laughs> And then Gregory, uh, GMB Kubitschek, you had known uh, previously, uh, but then, you know, that kind of weird nightmare. Yeah, yes. Horror story kind of gravitated towards that style. Yes. Mind. So uh, what was, well, see, this, that, that one, must have been one where you knew the style, of course. No, this is the weirdest one, was um, the story, The Light Under the Door, which is a story that uh, GMB Kubitschek and I did. Um, started off as the cold open to a longer horror story that Steven and I had been talking about set in the 70s. We wanted to tell like a 70s winter horror story about a um, a ghost or a demon, whatever whatever evil thing you want to classify it as that took the form of the things that you'd lost and loved. And I when I was trying to put together the works for this book, I had the full. I have a full script written for this for this story, but for the longer story, for the longer story yeah, it's it would have been a, it's a hundred page story. But I had this the script written, and I kind of I looked at the cold open and, and looked at it and thought this could be a standalone story in itself. Um, but I need another artist for it, and I had no idea who I was going to do so or going to work with. So I, um, I actually started like shopping for artists. I wanted to do a full work for hire agreement. Um, and not knowing anything about art, I would uh, I approached Gregory and said, "Hey, I I know you're super busy with your own comics, like or else I would have gone to him. But he's always so busy doing stuff." Um, I said, "I'm gonna start looking for an artist. I'm gonna send you some of the ones my favorites. Do you mind giving me an opinion? You can tell me who you think is you know legit and who's not legit because you never know who you're gonna meet on the internet." Um, so I started sending him some samples. And I showed him the story, and at one point he just he messaged me and he said, you know, if you can, if you can make it work in this time frame, 
um, I'll, I can do this comic, but we're going to, but, uh, we're going to do a Marvel method and, you know, absolutely. I would work with Gregory any day over someone on the internet. And can you just describe quickly Marvel method? Yeah. And, and I'll get to that is when Gregory and I met up to talk about this story, we kind of went through the story beats and, uh, kind of what the images that I had in my head and kind of what he, I mean, he has his own distinctive style, but Marvel method is the idea that the artist is going to dictate a lot of what the story looks like. It's going to dictate the paneling and the pacing and uh, how things look. And that stems from when Stanley was doing all of Marvel's comics or felt like all of Marvel's comics um, in early Marvel days, he and Jack Kirby and his artists would team up and Stan would write like a one page synopsis of a full 22 page issue. The artists would go and then um, do the art for that whole issue. And then Stan would come back and write the actual script for it. So when Gregory and I met up to discuss this, um, I think we walked away with just the story of um, there's a boy dreaming about his parents perishing in a car accident. He wakes up and the ghost of his mom is at his door. And at the end, it turns out that the mom is the, is the monster of the story was the entirety of the direction I gave Gregory. There was no script to it. We were just, here's our three beats. Uh, Gregory did some doodling in his little, in his notebook. And we were off, I gave him a dead, a print deadline and we were off to the races and I didn't hear from him for a long time until the week prior to the deadline. And then the pages all came in at once and I had to, I had to go and, uh, and letter them, which is its own unique challenge, writing a story without a script. Yeah. With the, with the actual art that you didn't have a script for beforehand. So that was kind of my first foray into doing Marvel method writing, but something yeah, that I would do I've, again. I've done some, uh, stuff with Gregory along similar lines, although yeah. I had more of a script, but, um, it's it's funny because me and Gregory are always like scrambling. To, we've been lately we've been really like scrambling to figure out like how can we you know work together on this project. Yeah. Again, I've got like a hundred pages of material, um, and you know, can we get this grant to cover this much and do this, this and like to just trying to figure out the logistics of how we could work together. Yeah, and at the same time, we're very aware that like fifteen years ago, back when I met Gregory, yeah. and like we you know kind of started hanging out. Yeah. Um, we were just like, we, we would have just, we should have just done what we you guys done did. It. We should have just done it. Yeah. No. And, and I mean, that just brings us back to the idea that even like, you know, as we said, it takes a writer 20 pages or 20 minutes to write a page and it takes an artist eight hours to, to, to do art for a page. Their time is very valuable and making comics. Um, if you're a writer that has no artistic talent like me, is very expensive if you're gonna if you're gonna pay your artist for each page that they're making. Um, so you have to find a way to make for it to be you know worthwhile for them too. And the better they are, the more expensive they are. Well, and the more demand they are. Absolutely, and, and it's only certain factors. But I, I just like I, I think to what you were saying before in terms of like you know you you, knew, you met Steve here and you met this guy here in this way. Like so often, I think when I teach classes, mm -hmm. uh, especially like so often students neglect the value of their peer group yep. and the people around them. Like oh, yeah. in many ways, like the most important like thing you're going to get out of a creative writing, the most important thing I got out of my creative writing class, uh, or classes, like when I went to university, yeah. I took this great creative writing class, Dennis Cooley, you know, who was a big, you know, influence on me and, you know, taught me a lot in that class. But as much as I learned in that class, the most valuable part of it was, I met Gregory Kamichik. <laughs> I met, you know, my friend Slim and Oz. Like I met a bunch yep. of people um, that, you know, to this day, I like, you know, still know and like, uh, or have worked with yeah. you know, in various capacities or, you know, am, you know, trying to work with or whatever. Yeah. And 
you know, it, it just, it, I think in some ways, like, especially when you're younger or you're just starting out, whatever, however old you are, yeah. I think often you neglect like the value of the person who also is trying to break yeah. through like you are. Yeah. But maybe, you know, is, um, you know, more readily available to work with. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and as just like you needs, you know, the credits and needs the experience and needs to learn and can learn uh, from the collaboration yep. and so on. I mean, especially when it comes to comics is you're going to get more done working with someone else than you're going to get working on your own. Um, there's, I mean, we're not going to get too business about it or too technical about it, but it's almost like it's a passive version of networking. Like if you're just nice to people, um, if you, if you are someone who is pleasant to work with, um, people will want to work with you to be able to do more. Well, that's the other thing is like that, that also gets, uh, around <laughs> like, cause another thing people are considering when they want to like who should I work with yeah. know, to do this comic is like, well, you know, you, again, yeah, you want somebody who can do the work, yeah. who can finish it, yeah. who you can afford and yeah. who is not a, and you want is, isn't horrible to be around yeah. or to like communicate with yeah. and so on. Right. One, one of the big jokes in comics is that there's, um, to be a professional, there are kind of three main qualities. There's, you're really good. You're really good to work with, or you're always like, you always hit your deadlines and if you can be two of those three things, you can be a professional art. You can be a professional comics maker. That's also a Neil Gaiman uh, quote. Yeah. Okay. Uh, from his like, make great art speech. Okay. Um, but, but yeah, it, it's completely true, you know, and if you can be all three, you know, you're made in the shade. Oh, you, that's <laughs> it. You're done. Yeah. But certainly like, I think people, I think for a lot, for reasons that of course make sense, like people tend to undervalue like the, um, they're always, I think especially if they're trying to break through or starting out or whatever. I think so often people are, you're looking up to somebody who's further along in your career than you are. Yeah. And you're thinking, well, how can I do that? Maybe I, they can help me or yeah. maybe they can tell me what to do. Yeah. And you know, maybe that's true, but so often like the solution is what they did was they hung out with their buddies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know? And like, and they like, we're doing stuff together, you yeah. know, like, and they were, you know, just, um, you know, the more achievable thing that they could do was what they actually did. Yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, it's such a fine line, right? Cause you always want to surround yourself with people that you want to be like, and you want, and you're, you're lifted up by the people around you, especially when they're better at something than you are. That's how you learn how to be better. But at the same time, you want to be like, you need to be able to work with people and not, you don't want to just be that guy who's sucking up to someone above them. Cause then you're, you're that guy. And no one wants to work with you. You're just someone who's doing things for their own, their own self-interest. And maybe you're you're doing something for your own self-interest, but that doesn't mean you can't be doing something with someone else. Yeah, and helping. I I, I often say like the best way to network is just to help other people do things. Yeah. <laughs> like no, absolutely. Like, who who could you help out? You know, and um, like networking just kind of becomes this weird function of helping other people around you out. Yeah. I also think people tend to overvalue like networking itself. Yeah, I mean, but, but you know, obviously it, it is important in certain ways. But but it's usually not as it's usually not important in the way you think. Yeah, like my I always say publish. My first uh, book was rejected by publishers for three years, and one of the publishers that rejected me was this uh, person I was hang I was playing words with friends on Facebook mm-hmm. with at the time. So like we were playing like this version of Scrabble on Facebook, and there was literally a point where in our relationship where like she, she, I played my move in words with friends yeah. and then she, you know, made her move 
And then she wrote me a rejection letter <laughs> while I was making my move. Yeah. And then she's then then she sent me the rejection letter. That was her move. <laughs> but it's like you know, and it's like your friends often and your your network and your friends often get you faster rejections. Okay. You know what I mean? Like it, it, it more so than they get you like acceptances yes. in many respects. Like you get their acceptances, um, and your friends, you know, they can maybe be helpful, but often the help is like they tell you. No, don't send that out. <laughs> or, you know, it's like an indirect thing often. It's, it's very yeah. rare that like a person will, you know, open this door for you. And even if they do, often it's a bad thing for you to step through the door because you're not ready. Uh, I could see that one. I could see that one being Do you know true. what I mean? Like, yeah. like it, it depends, of course, and everything's different. But I, I always find like the most effective and useful and just like nicest way to quote unquote network is just to like, like who's near you that you could help out and do cool yeah. things with. Yeah, I mean, I think a large part of it is being sell. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm. You always have to keep an eye open for a good opportunity. Sure. Be ready to take it when you can. Um, but you also have to be realistic about what you can and can't do. Mm-hmm. Um, I've turned down work from publishers before, lettering work from publishers before, because I was concerned I wouldn't be able to meet the deadline, um, yeah. and I didn't want to take Nothing on something. Worse than not making yeah, that there's, deadline, there's. Yeah. I didn't want to take on a project that I wouldn't be able to deliver on, or at least deliver on, a, a, deliver the quality on. Um, and maybe that's maybe I should have said yes to that project and found a way to make it work. I'll never know that now. But when I said no, it was because I didn't want to burn a bridge by doing poor work. So you always yeah. have to be kind of know know your limits and then know when you can push those limits because there are times when you're going to have to, especially if you want to grow. Um, but it's about being self-aware with what you're doing. Well, uh, do you know what you're doing next? Like you're working on these different uh, projects, trying to expand them outwards. Uh, is there is that your kind of core fo- creative focus at the moment? Yeah, I've got uh, three books that I've got in the works right now. I'm not going to announce two of them yet. I'll announce one just because we don't have titles on two of them yet. Um, our Stephen and I's next book, and he's going to hate me for announcing this without <laughs> him because he's not here, um, is called There Was Another Life. Um, we're set for a late 2020 publishing date. We don't have a firm date yet. Um, the artwork or the cover should be available for Halloween. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm assuming by the time you listen to this, you'll be able to, to see the cover. You can find it on both uh, my Instagram, Stephen's Instagram, and at radcall.com. This will go out in December, so it won't be. Uh, so this will be, be long gone. All right, you, perfect. We'll already have been announced. Maybe we'll announce the other scooping, two then. You're not scooping him. Okay. Uh, you know whatever announcements you want to engineer, but yeah, but and so, so you got do you're doing that as Rad Call Comics again? Or? Um, we're gonna we're gonna start working on it as a solo project to self publish, and if it gets picked up in the process, that we're open to that too. That's kind of been our business. That was our business model for the first one. Um, we're in discussions to have Infinite Universe be picked up by a publisher also right now, and that's all a product of having finished it first. So if we're going to take away some practical advice before we go, we're just going to circle back and say, if you want to do something, you know, go do it, and then you'll you'll figure out the rest as you go. My uh, great career advice to people is you should just be always doing things. <laughs> do it, yeah. I mean, so just many keep people doing things. Well, you meet so many people that are talking about how they're they're going to do something. I don't trust someone who says they're going to do something. Um, yeah. ch- like, come check in when it's done. And Gregory and Justin are just saying that. We're in their studio here recording this. Yeah. And, um, uh, I mean, I hear uh, less than they do yeah. from people 
getting like, oh, I got this great idea. Yeah. But even I get it a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and I can't imagine how often they hear it. Never mind, like. Every other person's working on their novel right now. <laughs> I was just working on my novel before you showed up. There you go. But you've actually finished a novel or a book well, before. I've, but it's whatever, right? Like, yeah. It doesn't matter. I'm still working on it. Yeah. It's nothing. Yeah. I don't, I don't like to talk about a project until it's, al- until it's done or it's almost done. Um, I'll tell, I'll say, yeah, I'm working on this, but I'm not, I don't tell anyone I'm working on it until there's a, some tangible evidence of, of work being done. 90% done means you're still not done. Exactly. And you might as well have not started. Not, <laughs> I don't want to go that the, far. From the point of view of an outside observer, <laughs> yep. it's, it's all the same to them because you can't, you haven't finished. Yeah, it's no good and to them until it's done. It's no good to anyone until it's done. And, uh, you know, it, it, you need to be in the habit of finishing things mm-hmm. and you can't get in the habit of finishing things unless you're doing things. Yeah. So it's like, you kind of have to balance like, you should be doing things and you should be finishing things then you should be doing more things and you don't want to be haphazard or do things as you're finishing things yeah like you don't want to be like I, I think it's very easy to kind of get into that you know paralysis by analysis and mm-hmm. be overthinking you know your next move when you haven't even made this move yet yeah you know? Yeah, I mean, a part of it is you know you gotta compartmentalize it's really easy to get caught up in the big picture stuff and just stall out um, you have to be moving forward on the little picture stuff all the time. So whether it's, you know, write, go home and write one page tonight. If you do one page a day, you'll have, by the end of the year, you'll have 365 pages. Like that's, there's your book. Um, if you do nothing, you're going to have nothing. Yep. Uh, well, I, I appreciate you talking to me. And again, um, if you go to, is it Radcall Comics? R-A-D-K-A-U-L.com. You can get both Infinite Universe and uh, What Will Not Last, uh, which will also be available from Mythos and Inc. But at the second that we're talking, uh, it's at that website primarily. Well, hopefully by the time they hear this, it'll be available through Mythos. <laughs> and uh, and also, again, I'll, uh, at uh, writingtherongway.com, I'll link to uh, the that link, but also to the Super Pop Science uh, podcast and the episode that... Um, Stephen and uh, Lyndon are on. Uh, do you have any kind of um, uh, last, you know, words of advice for somebody you know who's just kind of starting to get interested in comics writing? Um, two things. The first is I was happy to be invited on the show because it's called Writing the Wrong Way, and I feel like I've spent my whole life writing the wrong way. So I think, and I think that's the big takeaway too, is that at the end of the day. There's no real rules in how you're going to do something. You just have to find a way to get it. You have to get it done. So as a writer, you're going to come across, you know, a day job. Everyone's got a day job. And then you have to make writing your second job until it can become your main job. And there's no formula into doing that. You just have to find ways to make things in the margins of your life. Um, I think you have to keep enjoying doing the things that you enjoy doing and uh, find the time where you can. You always make time for the things that matter. And if doing this is what matters to you, then you're going to have enough time to do it at the end of the day, as long as you stick to it. Well, great. Well, thanks very much uh, for talking to me. And um, keep writing the wrong way. (laughs) 